Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Mary Fulbrook on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, A Small Town Near Auschwitz, Ordinary Nazis and the Holocaust. I hope you enjoy Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Mary Fulbrook on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, A Small Town Near Auschwitz, Ordinary Nazis and the Holocaust. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Mary. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm good. You? Uh, I'm very well. Thank you very much. Today we're talking with Mary Fulbrook about her terrific book, a Small Town Near Auschwitz, Ordinary Nazis and the Holocaust. As I was telling Mary during the pre-interview, uh, it is sometimes the case that I don't read these books cover to cover, but this one I did, and I was very glad I did. In many ways, it's uh, very... I don't exactly know the word for it. We'll have to discuss this, Mary. I was going to say touching book, because Mary has a personal connection with somebody involved in it, and she will explain that in due time. And this adds a kind of layer of meaning and, I guess, intensity to the book uh, because she, she is, as I say, associated in some way. We'll talk about that with, with uh, the protagonist, um, Udo Klausa, uh, by, a, by an interesting connection. Um, but I, I really enjoyed reading the book. I've read a lot of books about the Holocaust. This one uh, is about... A, sort of the local level in in the Holocaust, and it's like nothing I've ever read before. I, I, one of the things I, I thought when I was reading the book is that it's hard to say anything new about the Holocaust, but I think Mary has done it, um, which is a feat in and of itself. So, Mary, perhaps you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I'm Professor of German History at UCL, which is University College London. Um, I've all my life been interested in matters German. Uh, I grew up always knowing about the Holocaust, but also always thinking of Germany as a place for fantastic summer holidays and loving German culture and literature. So I had that ambivalence in my background about, you know, this is a place which I love, and yet it's a place where the most terrible things happened. So I guess I had to land up being a German historian. <laughs> and um, you've written other books before this. They... I've written a lot of books, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I've written quite a, a lot about the GDR, so I was very interested in the communist dictatorship in East Germany mm-hmm. and how ordinary people experienced life in the GDR, and that's been one of the main topics that I've researched over many years. Um, I've written about generations in 20th century Germany, starting before the First World War, so a much broader panoramic sweep right across the century, the significance of the First World War and the Second World War for mm-hmm. what I call the war youth generations, mm-hmm. living through two succeeding very different dictatorships. Um, I've written about early modern Germany and England. I've written about Puritanism and Pietism in the 17th and 18th centuries. I've written a book on historical theory, so I'm very interested in social theory and historiography. Um, and quite widely, I've edited books on European history quite mm-hmm. widely. So I've produced a lot of stuff over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was the first time I got really intensively engaged with the Holocaust in a yeah. book. Well, I envy you in a certain way because you never would have been allowed to do that in the United States. What <laughs> ranging across the centuries? Or? Yeah, no, no we don't, yeah. they don't let you yeah. do that. No, <laughs> I don't think I would have been able to in Germany either. I mean, I, I've written a couple of very general books and overview of German history, a concise history of Germany. And uh, a German colleague once said to me, "There is no way you could do that in Germany." Yeah. Well, I applaud you. Yeah. I think it's terrific. Uh, so, as you say, this is your first book about the Holocaust. Uh, and you have a particularly interesting story about how you came to write it, and I, I think that our listeners would be interested in hearing about that. Perhaps you could tell that story. 
Yeah, this book is really unusual for me. I was um, sitting one Wednesday morning, I was about to teach a class at 11, and at 10.30 in the morning, I just idly thought, this was after my mother had died, I idly thought I'll look through some old letters she had from a school friend. Um, and I knew about the existence of these letters, but and I'd looked at the excerpts before, but I hadn't really thought about them. And that morning, I read one of the letters which said, today, 15,000 Jews were deported from here. And I thought, where on earth could she have been living that 15,000 Jews were deported, that mm-hmm. she would witness that in one day? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I simply thought, that is an amazing number of Jews to be living among, to witness them being deported. Mm-hmm. So I googled the name of the town. She'd, she'd written it from a place called Bensburg, and I'd never heard of Bensburg, and mm-hmm. I know Germany very well, and I was thinking Heidelberg, Freiburg, you know, lots of Burgs and Bergs in Germany, but mm-hmm. Bensburg. Um, so I googled it, and the wonders of the internet, up suddenly came the fact that it was the Germanized name of the Polish town of Benjin, that's how you pronounce what looks mm-hmm. like Bedzin to you and me, but it's pronounced Benjin, and that the uh, chief executive, the Landrat, was my godmother's husband. Um, these letters that I was looking at from my mother's best school friend, her best school friend had become my godmother after the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she'd been married to this man since the late 1930s, and they had lived in this town, and he had been the civilian chief executive of the county, of which this was the county town. And when my godmother had witnessed this deportation of 15,000 Jews, her husband, a man I knew very well, um, had been in charge of the town mm-hmm. as the civilian administrator. Uh, so I felt like I'd been literally punched in the stomach. You know, mm-hmm. I, f- I felt really, really shocked. And more so because my mother was a refugee from Nazi Germany, had lost touch with her friend during the war, um, had only picked up the friendship again after the war. And this friend had never, ever, ever told my mother that she had been a Nazi, or rather that her husband, for sure, had been a Nazi. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it, this just amazed me. It was it was a, a, it was like a physical experience, and I had to go in and teach my class. Thought I would spend the afternoon going to the library, finding out what does a Landrat do, what is mm-hmm. the nature of this role, um, and then discovered in the course of the afternoon that it wasn't quite so simple. That you couldn't just go to a library and look it up because this particular level of mid-level functionaries had at that time not been much written about. Um, so I spent the next few weeks just getting more and more obsessed, thinking, you know, how on earth could I have gone on summer holidays with this family, known them really well, sat next to this man at breakfast and at dinner on our summer holidays, and never realized that he had ha- actually held a significant role in the Nazi hierarchy. And I still didn't really understand what it was that his role entailed. So I kind of, I was doing other stuff, you know, I was teaching, I was writing another book, the the one on generations, but this just totally got under my skin and I didn't mean initially to write a book about it but the more I explored it the more I researched it the more I tried to think about it and talk to this man's son about it the more I couldn't make sense of it until I started writing it out for myself and the more I wrote it down the more I realized that this was actually historically quite significant it wasn't just a personal answer to a personal question. It actually was saying something which was historically of considerable importance. And I think in that sense, you know, it had to become a book eventually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it certainly is a very interesting story. One of the things that I found uh, very challenging about the book, as I put myself in your shoes, is that the source base is peculiarly ambiguous because... Udo Klauser, this person we're talking about, who is um, Landrat, uh, he tells his own story in a way, and you have to pick through the fabrications in order to find out exactly what happened. And I found that I found that very challenging. Um, could you talk a little bit before we actually get into his story about the sources that are available? And I guess beginning with his, he wrote a memoir. Yep. Yeah, and then you know how how you put together what. You know, sort of separated, you know, the simple way to put it is separate fact from fiction, but we know that's really quite hard. Um, yes, so if yes. you could talk a little bit about that, I think yeah. it would be interesting. Well, he, he wrote his memoirs, um, completed them around 1980, so a long time after these events. Um, some of what he wrote 
in there, he had already written in defence statements because he was investigated by the West German Central Office for investigating Nazi war crimes. He was investigated for getting on for 30 years, 20, 30 years on this. They only stopped the investigations in the late 1980s and started around 1960. Um, so some of his defence statements and things he'd said in there reappeared in his memoirs, but his memoirs obviously are much, much longer. And I read it and I kind of initially felt reassured. And when I spoke to his son, his son absolutely believed his father's story and said his father had always talked quite openly about his past during the Third Reich and that he'd written about it and there really was nothing to worry about. And I just felt uneasy about it. It, it just didn't quite add up somehow. So when I started looking at the archival sources, um, it, 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 there were discrepancies. And also when I looked at the letters that my godmother had written, not to my mother, because my mother was in Britain and, and my godmother didn't write to her during the war, but that my godmother had written to her mother, who was living in Berlin, and to a family friend of hers also living in Berlin at the time, I realized that there were little tiny lies in the memoirs. There were little... Um, particularly discrepancies about dating when he said he wasn't in the area at a time a particular crime occurred and I knew he was in the area from the letters that his wife was writing at the time so that made me begin to sort of feel I need to track this, I need to just get this straight I just want to get the chronology straight mm -hmm. and then it occurred to me that some of what I was doing was just looking at it the wrong way. I was thinking in the way that many people do, that Nazi perpetrators are people who shoot Jews into ditches and, um, you know, do ghastly things in terms of physical brutality. And I suddenly realized, as I was doing this, that actually his um, unease and his determination to keep repeating that he was innocent and he didn't want innocently to become guilty, as he kept putting mm -hmm. it, had to do with the fact that he was deeply implicated in an administration of racism, which was just as murderous in its ultimate outcome, um, but in this sort of indirect way. And, and this kind of puzzled me more and more. And then I thought, well, I'm really going to have to sort this out and, and go through the archival material. But it, it was evident from the, the memoirs and from um, his wife's letters that there was a sense of unease, but that he wasn't prepared to admit to any guilt and that it was very difficult to nail him down in any way. It was defensive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that must have been a fact. I, I liked what you said about trying to get the chronology right, because whenever I write a book, that's the very first thing I do, is I try to understand what happened when. But in this yeah. case, it seems particularly hard, because you have it these contradictory sources. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's because he's so, his main defense is that he'd always, quote, disappeared to the army. Mm -hmm. He was never there when anything nasty took place. He'd mm -hmm. always disappeared to the army. And he did do little stints of military service. But as soon as I started unpacking them, I found that the dates of his military service just were different in, in different places when he claimed he'd been away for longer periods than he actually had done or that he'd left earlier than he actually did do. And some of these began to seem psychologically very significant, um, particularly the last uh, time when he claims he left immediately after the major deportations, which my godmother had been writing about, that 15,000 in one day, um, he claims he left in protest immediately after that. And in fact, he hadn't. Uh, he hadn't left for several months after that. Mm -hmm. And so I began to wonder why, um, what was it he was hiding? What was it he was covering up? What was it he was uncomfortable about and, and didn't want to feel he'd been around there at the time mm -hmm. for? Um, so what was he responsible for during these periods when he was actually there and said he wasn't? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's begin to talk a little bit about him. Uh, he has an interesting story himself. Uh, could you begin by sort of laying out his life and ambitions? And, you know, his father was a Landrat, if I remember correctly, and yep. he was going to follow in his footsteps. And then yeah, yeah, he wanted yeah. to be a member of the right regiment. I mean, there's a lot to say about German culture at this time, about his ambitions. He's, yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a really typical example of what's often called the war youth generation of the First World War. He was born in 1910, so he's one of the younger members. This is, this is a generation born basically in the first decade of the 20th century. These are young men who are too young to fight in the First World War. They witness it as boys and as teenagers. Um, they take away the lessons of defeat and feel that they really have to do something about this. So on the right, uh, these are right-wingers, basically, who want to see Germany great again. In his 
particular case, he was, again, very, very typical of that particular right-wing group who lived on the German borderlands, the Silesian borderlands with Poland, um, who were shocked at the Polish corridor, the revision of Germany's borders in the Treaty of Versailles. His father was a Landrat, and that had always been his professional ambition, his career ambition. Um, so he did the the usual thing. He was involved in paramilitary activities as a schoolboy. He was involved in sort of paramilitary training in a right-wing youth group. Um, he studied law. He did all the things to become a civil servant, but he was also very keen on being in the army and particularly in this elite Potsdam Infantry Regiment Number no. 9. Um, so he was pursuing this dual-track career that many young men of that generation and that type did, partly military, partly civil service. Very, very typical. Also thought of himself as quite religious because unusually for uh, Prussian civil servants, he came from a Catholic mm -hmm. background. So I think he had a slight, um, I don't know whether one would call it a chip on his shoulder, but he was aware of the fact that being Catholic might be a hindrance in his career um, progression, that it would be held against him in some way. So he was almost trying even harder to be the perfect civil servant and the loyal obedient of the Reich, I think. This, this was not sending him into opposition. I think it was, if anything, nudging him into being even better at his job than he, other people might have had to be in order to get the same promotions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he had kind of a stellar career. I mean, things, he did. things really yeah. fell right for him. Yeah, yeah. He was he was very clever, very intelligent, um, apparently quite handsome, dashing, you know, made an impression on people, uh, was always very efficient, hardworking, um, very good at networking and social connections. Uh, his wife, my mother's best friend who became my godmother, was from a very aristocratic background, high aristocracy. Uh, and so he married upwards, there's no mm -hmm. doubt about it. He met her brothers through the in Potsdam Infantry Regiment Number no. 9 and um, through her brothers met her. So his marriage was a, a upward social mobility, I think it could be said, although his, his background was very uh, solidly, um, mm -hmm. but it, it wasn't aristocratic. I mean, it was well-to-do and it was, uh, as I say, his father was a, a, a politically significant figure in the area. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, so he had the right connections. And family connections were very important. Mm -hmm. And he did have a stellar career. He was going up very fast. He then moved. I mean, it's almost uncanny. Everywhere that Germany went, he was in its wake, as it were, very quickly. <laughs> um, when they, when Germany took over the Sudetenland after Munich in 1938, he moved in as part of the civil service dealing with a particular area there. As soon as they took over Bohemia and Moravia in the spring of 39, he moved down to Prague and was involved in the administration there. As soon as they invaded Poland, he went into the Reichsgau Vaterland, the Vartigau, and was the personal assistant to the principal civilian administrator there. So he was in, in Posen for a few months, and then suddenly, with a lot of machination, uh, he lands this plum job as Landgrat of Benjin at the tender age of uh, a rising 30, basically. Mm, yeah. um, so it really is a very rapid career. And that, I think, that role was found through connections because mm -hmm. it had already been filled and there had to be a little juggling and moving people around to different positions in order to make the vacancy for him in 1940. Um, and he was then, because he was so young, in fact, he was 29 and a half when he took it on, uh, he was only provisionally appointed mm -hmm. on a probationary period. So again, he had to work very hard to demonstrate his capabilities in order to ensure that he would be confirmed in the role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the most interesting parts about the book, to me, was the uh, level of detail that you were uh, able to view and then describe concerning his promotion to um, Landrat. I mean, nothing, nothing similar. I do Russian and Soviet history. Nothing similar exists. But you were you were actually able to to really see what they thought of him and what different people thought of him. And you know, there were some people arguing that he was too young, and they were playing one game, and there were people put, played off against one another. I just thought it was fascinating that you were able to get to that that level of detail yeah, about this guy, yeah. you know, basically, you know, half a century on, you'll be able to say this about, about him. But, uh, he, he, um, he, he, what, what, what kind of a Nazi was he? I mean, he, he, he talks about this himself. Yeah. He, 
He is quite open, quite refreshingly honest, actually, about saying that uh, when Hitler first came to power, um, there did seem to be, like many people, he thought there were things that Hitler could do that needed doing, like return to full employment, particularly, and revision of Treaty of Versailles. We know that those things were among the more popular aspects of Hitler's rule in the early years of his uh, time. Um, so he does concede that he was in some ways enthusiastic. He also pretends a little bit as if he had to join the Nazi party because if he didn't join quickly, it would be too late. It would be closed. A friend tipped him off that Nazi party membership applications would be cut off and he had to sort of rush to become a member before it was too late. So it was careerism, opportunism quite clearly at that point. Um, but it's very difficult to get a sense of it. He was he was someone who liked to think of himself as a decent man and did not like the rabble, the lower class elements of Nazism. So I think in that too, he was actually quite typical of a significant number of Nazis who felt that if they weren't in the party, it would be taken over by the rabble and, and they needed to uh, to ensure that it stayed on course mm -hmm. as far as they were concerned. Mm -hmm. But then when he kind of gets into the, uh, well, I guess what we can call ethnic cleansing, when he, when he gets into the process of this, or, or, or during the occupation, he, he talks about different sorts of Nazis. Mm -hmm. And he basically puts himself in a, a camp which is decent. This word decent, someone should write a whole book yes. about it. Because I don't know Himmler was always on about being decent. He was very, yes. very yeah. important for him yeah. to be decent. Yeah. Yeah. The, others, the others, other people, were always the real Nazis. Yeah, right. And he was never really a Nazi. I mean, he always speaks of the Nazis as somebody else. He never speaks of himself yeah. as a Nazi. The Nazis were always somebody else. So you would have the impression that he wasn't ever a member of the Nazi party, which is absurd. But mm -hmm. th that's the way his memoirs read. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we've got him to uh, Benjin already. Uh, where is Benjin and what kind of a place is it? Okay, it's 25 miles north of Auschwitz. So that puts it right on the Holocaust map immediately. Mm -hmm. It's in an area that was um, in... A, a strip called the Eastern Strip, Eastern Upper Silesia, that was incorporated into the Third Reich, uh, but had been part of Poland, had not formally been part of the Third Reich, and in fact had never been part of Germany since, I think, the late 18th century or so. It was... Um, it was not within the borders of Prussia previously, mm -hmm. so it was predominantly Polish. And the it's just northeast of Katowice, Katowice, mm -hmm. so it's very close to the former German-Prussian border, but just on the Polish side of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a miserable town, I think, now, and probably was then, because it's... It, it's an industrial area, a very, very industrial area, a lot of mines, a lot of smoke, a lot of... Um, chimneys and factories and so on. So it's a heavily polluted area. Uh, at the moment, I mean, when I've been there, it's looked a little decrepit because it's had, you know, years of communism followed by not successful introduction of capitalism. It's a bit neglected and forlorn, and it doesn't look like some other areas of Poland which have uh, benefited from um, the end of communism and accession to the European Union and so on. So it's, it's kind of got a bit left behind from modernization. Um, when Udo Klauser was there, uh, it was an industrial area, very significant for the German war effort, which is why it was that whole area was included into the, the Greater German Reich and not the general government because it was economically so mm -hmm. significant. Um, the town itself of Benjamin, which is the seat of government, was nearly 50% Jewish. Uh, had a population of 54,000, of whom roughly 25,000 were Jewish. And it was relatively, I mean, it, the cultural diversity was evident, but it was not an area where there was acute anti-Semitism until this was whipped up to some extent, even before the start of the war in the 1930s, but where the Jewish community was fairly settled, fairly diverse, I would say. Uh, some people very prosperous, many Jewish members of the city council in Benjamin, um, some very poor, so it, quite a wide range socially as well. The countryside, the wider county, predominantly rural with little pockets of industry and two other significant towns, um, one of which was Dombrova, which gave its name to the whole Dombrovan Basin, 
of mining and manufacturing, and one of which was Chelaj, a neighbouring town, which is really now a suburb of Katowice. Um, so a, a very an area of conurbation almost, another big town just mm-hmm. to the south, um, which ha- had its own municipal mayor, Sosnoviets. Uh, so a sprawling conurbation around to the south and to the west in Katowice. Um, and then, as I say, 25 miles further south, Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And what was the, when when he was appointed there, was he aware of the larger program that was involved with the germanization of the area? I mean, did he, what, did he think yes, he was just... Yes, of course. He yes, was right. aware. Of course he was aware. I mean, he was personal assistant to the principal civilian administrator mm-hmm. in, in the Vartigau and he says in his memoirs even that he had witnessed the deportation of Poles being dumped into the general government mm-hmm. in order to make way for incoming Germans who were being brought back into the Reich, Reich as they put it, and he says in his memoirs he'd had enough of this while he was in the Vartigau mm-hmm. um, and then he witnessed, quote, witnessed uh, you know, saw, but had nothing to do with it. The same thing happening again in his area um, and he says things like at best one could stand by wringing one's hands but one could do nothing about it, it was all a matter for the Gestapo, the police, the SS all with somebody else was doing it without ever explicitly recognising that in fact it was the responsibility of the Landrat to oversee this kind of population movement and quite explicitly so Mm-hmm. And as an intelligent man and a lawyer and somebody in that job, he must have known that. I've read the directives that were coming to him, mm-hmm. um, and he must have read them too. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's, what, what I found interesting was that uh, he, 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 again, in his memoir, he, he says something quite different, but he, he takes over this area. It's not an ordinary administrative post. That's clear. Uh, mm. and, and then he keeps getting these directives to move really vast number of people around. Yes. And, and could you talk a little bit, because there are waves of them. They kind of come, they don't all come at once. They, they, he gets buffeted by these orders to, to move this group or that group or this kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's a very complex process. Um, first of all, there's a population census in the winter of 39 to 40, which is before he's become Landrat there. He's still in Posen at that point. Um, but the same thing is happening everywhere, just counting heads. Who counts as Jewish? Who counts as Polish? Who counts as an ethnic German in some way, in various different ways? Um, and therefore, who gets into what category for what kind of treatment? So that is all happening. When he arrives in Benjamin, the Jews are already wearing their armbands to mm. stigmatize them so that they stand out, they're visible. And for the first several months, the main thing is making certain areas pleasant and habitable for Germans and Germans only. In other words, moving Jews out Mm -hmm. of where they were living, ousting them from their houses, moving them out of their livelihoods, confiscating their possessions, um, confiscating their homes, and just getting them out of areas that the Germans want to take over. And that's the first kind of wave, uh, which means that Jews are inevitably forced into more overcrowded and, and cramped quarters and reduced to poverty because they've lost their the shops and the manufacturing businesses and so on that they'd previously run. And that's the first wave. Then by the late 1940, ghettoization is a bit becoming the flavor of the month. And the police chief in neighboring Sosnovets is very keen to establish a proper ghetto. And there is some discussion about that. And in January 1941, uh, Udo Klauser, along with the police chief and the uh, city mayor of Sosnovets, sign a document together saying, okay, we're going to determine certain areas that should be completely Jew-free, in other words, no Jews may be in them, and other areas which are going to be for the Jews. So that is the the sort of second stage where they're beginning to group Jews together and make other areas Jew-free. But they're doing this sort of step-by-step. There's there's no obvious way in which they can just wall off one area and dump everybody in it, as was done in Warsaw or Wutsch. Litzmannstadt, the ghetto mm-hmm. of Litzmannstadt in the Polish city of Wuch. Um So that's the second stage. And then that entails a lot of movement linked to movements precipitated by other developments. For example, Himmler comes along, takes a look at the Polish town of Oswiecim, which to you and me is Auschwitz, mm-hmm. 
decides this will be a very good place for a concentration camp for an SS area, decides that a lot of Poles need moving out and a lot of Jews need moving out. So the Jews from Auschwitz get moved to Benjamin and Sosnowiec. So the overcrowding which is going on in the course of basically 1940-41 as a result of all these early movements is exacerbated by movements in of a, a swelling number of Jews mm. from other pop, other areas from west of the so-called police border, which is the, the old German border, basically, the, the western areas that are much more German, Katowice and west of that. They're being dumped over into this eastern strip, and then Jews are being moved from within the eastern strip from places like Auschwitz to Benjamin and Sosnowiec. So there's a swelling Jewish population which is being squeezed into ever smaller areas, so that that's going on for quite a while. Then you get um, the more sinister stages. I think the definitively more sinister. This is all bad enough. And one of the arguments I would like to make, really, in this book is that we shouldn't let the Holocaust overshadow the fact that people were being brutally maltreated, starved, neglected, forced into such conditions of poverty that many of them were dying of disease and malnutrition and, and difficulties in their private lives even before we come to the what we conventionally think of as the mass extermination program. Um, so those stages were bad enough that they were not clear-cut. Then you get to a position in late 1941, spring of 1942, where there are directives, particularly in the autumn of 1941, I think this is the second major stage that comes then, where there are directives saying Jews must be concentrated within certain areas. And Udo Klauser, who writes in his memoirs that he barely remembers any Jews ever living in any area for which he had responsibility, and if there had ever been any, they must have been moved into ghettos before he arrived. Udo Klauser, who does not remember this, in fact was responsible for asking his subordinate functionaries to concentrate Jews into specific areas in the villages and the towns in the county for which he was responsible. Mm -hmm. So he sends out this directive and his subordinates send back their reports on their progress with this, that they've managed to cramp so and so many families into such a tiny area or so and so many houses. Um, so that is a second major stage of ghettoization, concentration. And with that, along with that, goes a determination to increase the control over the movements of Jews so that they can't use public transport, they can't move around freely anymore, they're constantly under the oversight of either the local police authorities or their employers who are um, the SS, for example, uh, and others, the local administration. Um, labor camps grow massively in the area. There's a huge SS empire of labor camps in the area under something called the Organisation Schmelt, after a particular SS uh, man by the name of Schmelt. Um, so they're, they're getting more and more under control in the course of the autumn of 41, the spring of 1942. And this is what makes it easy, or much easier, for them to be rounded up and deported and gassed when that program gets off the ground in the spring of 1942 and grows massively in the summer of 1942. So that second stage of ghettoization is really a precondition, making it possible for the Gestapo and the SS to round up Jews who've already been concentrated and finding it difficult to move around. And then the third and final stage... Um, which comes after the massive deportation of August 1942. The third and final stage is signed into existence in September 1942. And that is when the head of the Jewish section of the Gestapo in Katowice comes to Benjamin, speaks with the city council officers, the people in the town hall basically in Benjamin, and says, look, we now need them effectively incarcerated so that the final roundup will be easier to effect. It's ghettoization specifically for incarceration in order to make the final clear out easier. And that's quite clear in the most chilling minutes I think I've ever read of a, of a mundane municipal meeting. Mm -hmm. And so this final stage is effectively drawing 
all those who remain after that horrendous deportation of August 1942, drawing the remaining Jews into a, a much more tightly controlled single area, um, a double ghetto, in fact, between Benjamin and Sosnovets, a linked ghetto. There's a Sosnovets side and a Benjamin side, but it's linked. Uh, so that in the summer of 1943, when there is the final clear out, it is in principle going to be easier for them to be rounded up and deported. In practice, because there was so much resistance among the Jews by that time, there was effectively an uprising lasting two weeks. It made it very, very difficult for the deportations to be carried out in the way they'd planned, the Nazis had planned. Mm -hmm. When Klauser thinks about this when writing his memoir, how, how does he explain his involvement? And I'm particularly interested in these, at these convenient absences yeah um he's always away at the front in his memoirs he doesn't remember jews i mean you read the memoirs and you think this is an area in which there were no jews or if there were anyway there weren't any in the area for which he was responsible and that nothing nasty ever happened while he was there and if anything nasty ever happened somebody told him about it later but he hadn't been there at the time it just does not appear in his memoirs he would not know hmm. that any of this ghettoization policy was under his control it, it's just not there mm -hmm. that that's one thing and the second thing is that um, particularly that final last stage, I kept wondering why he claimed that he'd left in August 1942, straight after the big deportation. And I thought, what was going on in the autumn of 42 that he didn't want to have been there for? And I think it's a combination of that final stage of ghettoization, which was... Um, initiated in September 1942, and he was still very much in charge at that point, and he simply didn't want to have known about it, I think. And it was also that several straightforward war crimes took place in the area in that autumn that the Lutwisberg Central Office was investigating um, gendarmes shooting Jews, trying to escape Jews who had been in hiding and mm. then were discovered. And he was in charge of the gendarmerie. The gendarmerie reported to him, and he simply lied and said he was not in the area at the time. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think his absences were very convenient, particularly for that autumn of 1942, where he absolutely does not want to admit that he was around at the time. Mm -hmm. And he has some stories about saving Jews, doesn't he? He's, there's a major and mystifying story that he yeah. saved a Jew. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the first thing to be said about this is it's very, very typical. Uh, you, you scratch virtually any West German's life story at this time, and they've saved a Jew. Um, you look at court records of perpetrators being tried, and a common defense is that they've saved a Jew. So we know that an awful lot of people claim they saved a Jew. Now, I think in this case... It's very hard to get to the bottom of it. It's a family story of which they're very proud. And in the family, it was held that this Jew who had been saved had been seen in Israel after the war and really had been saved. There, there was sort of a rumor circulating to this effect. The actual story is just much more complicated. The Jew in question was employed by Udo Klauser. He was employed by the Landrat's office and was kind of um, a janitor, gardener, factotum, man about the house, serviced the boiler room in the basement, kept the heating going, did the gardening, kept an eye on the toddlers in the garden, and seems to have had um, a good relationship with the Clouser family. Alexandra, my godmother, writes in her letters at the time to her mother in Berlin uh, about how this man, like Floyd was his name, um, was playing with one of her toddlers in the garden. And, you know, it's, it's quite idyllic, really. You know, this is a family servant, and they clearly were fond of him. And he had a wife and two small children, two girls. So it's it's the everyone has his decent Jew, mm -hmm. everyone has his good Jew kind of syndrome, which we know about much more widely in Nazi Germany. So that was that was the background to it. Now in the August 1942 deportations, um, this was an event that Udo Klauser in his memoirs claims he witnessed only briefly during a lunch hour when he happened to be at home and saw a miserable procession of about a thousand Jews marching past on their way to the station. 
And then he claims that among these, possibly in the sports ground before this procession to the station, had been Light Floyd and his family who had managed to smuggle a note out to him. And he had managed to rush to the sports ground, obtain their release, but they were still not safe, as he puts it in his memoirs. And later he had to hide them in the basement of his house. And... In his story, he hides them there for a week, bringing them food, and then sadly tells Light Floyd that he too has to leave the area. He is now off to the army. He can't help him anymore. He must go away. And Light Floyd thus must have been left to his fate and to went away. You know, this is this is how he portrays the story. The story cannot have been like that. Um, First of all, the deportation action lasted a lot longer than that sort of lunch hour that is claimed, or a bit longer than a lunch hour with the spots ground that's claimed in the memoirs. It lasted for nearly a week. Uh, day after day after day, these Jews were held in the sports ground and then for several days in a former Jewish orphanage, the other side of the railway tracks opposite the station. So it was in total in, in Benjamin, 24,000 Jews were being held against their will for nearly a week while they were waiting for trains to take people down the tracks to Auschwitz or off to slave labor camps. Some Jews were released and sent home again. Um, the sports ground was right opposite the villa in which the Clouser family were living. And that was why my godmother witnessed it at such close hand, the shooting and the deaths and the murders on the, on the sports ground. So this was not something that Udo Clouser had just barely noticed opening the curtains over lunch, as it were. Um, and the story of the saving light flowing just simply doesn't quite add up. If he went, if Clouser went to the sports ground and obtained the release of Light Floyd, he was acting like many, many other German employers, going and saying, this one is a useful labourer, those are not. You know, this is what they were doing. Mm -hmm. They were doing the selections in that sports ground. They had tables doing what Mengele did at Auschwitz, mm -hmm. choosing some people to go to one side because they were useful for labor and other people to go to the other side because they were going down to the gas chambers. Mm -hmm. So effectively, this choosing him for labor, which could be presented as saving him, it can also be interpreted as participating in a selection and saying, no, I still need a useful worker here. Mm -hmm. um, so... If Light Floyd was granted the status of useful labourer, he would have been sent home with the right stamp on his ID card. However, his wife, who seems to have been haggard, as the way Clouser describes her, and the two small children, would never have been selected as useful labour. And it is quite possible that they were then unable to, to pass muster at this selection. And my guess is, we know from Clouser's memoirs, in fact, and we know from the testimony given by his right-hand man in the house, the guy who really did look after the house, a man called Margosh, we know that it was Margosh who initially let Light Floyd in and hid him and his family in the basement. And my guess is that Margosh, Light Floyd was released properly with the right papers. His wife and his daughters were not, but he managed to grab his wife and daughters out of the miserable procession, as Clouser calls it, on the way to the station and rushed down the side street into the villa of the Nuntrat, which was just 50 metres from the corner from the road going to the station, and found Margosh and said, look, hide us all quickly in the basement. You know, my wife and daughters are going to be deported. And everybody knew what, where they were being deported to. The knowledge of Auschwitz was well spread by this time among the local population. It was so close by. Mm. Um, and my guess is that Margosh then did this, went and told Clauser. I suspect that Clauser and his wife Alexandra were genuinely concerned about the family. I think they probably did genuinely bring food down and try and hide them for the week of the deportations. I think they probably were pretty courageous at that point, although we can't tell. Um, but I suspect also that Clauser got mighty scared, absolutely terrified, and then um, told them they'd got to get out because he didn't want to lose his job. He didn't want to be in trouble in any way. And probably then, as soon as he thought the trouble had died down, the deportation action was over. 
told them to get out and we know that none of them in fact did survive after that. Mm. We know that the wife and two daughters do not appear on the lists of those still around several months later but Mike Floyd does still appear mm. on the employment list the following spring. Um, and we know that Light Floyd does not appear on any list anywhere registered with a number on arrival at a camp. So the suspicion is that he didn't survive the uh, the deportation of the summer of 43, but was just gassed on arrival at Auschwitz without being tattooed with a number. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, one of the things that I found most interesting and disturbing in the book uh, was, in fact, the letters from, her name is Alexandra, is that right? Yes. Yes. The, the, Alexandra's letters while she was in Beijing. Could you talk a little bit about those? Okay, they're very curious. I mean, I don't. Um, it, it, I, I have this ambivalence about respecting family privacy, and so I am. I really respect the son who looks after these letters and his willingness to be completely open with me and let me read all of them, you know, and sit at his kitchen table and read them through and take copious notes. I mean, he was incredibly helpful and open about this. And so in the book, I didn't want to um, tread on what might rightly be thought to be private aspects, but I could not help but be shocked uh, in general terms, let me put it this way, at the extent to which Alexandra's letters are full of the kind of stuff that would be fine in any normal everyday life, um, you know, uh, chatter to her mother, basically. It's, it's the equivalent of having a long phone conversation every other day. She wrote every two or three days to her mother, and it's the equivalent of us being on email or the telephone mm-hmm. all the time. Um, so it's everyday chatter, which in normal circumstances you would think, uh, well, of course, a young woman who's got a baby and has another one on the way and then it's born and so on, wants to talk to her mother about everything and about the children's development and the difficulties in getting fresh fruits and vegetables and how she's going to have a new dress made for her but is it worth it now she's pregnant again and what does her mother think about wearing stockings of a certain colour with a coat of another colour and so on. That kind of stuff it w- would be fine if we didn't know that all around her these people were dying and being shot dead for having crossed the street at the wrong angle or being found outside after curfew or were dying from malnutrition or dying because they'd been brutally beaten up in the workplace or, you know, I mean, if we didn't know what was all around, these letters would be fine. I think what I found really difficult about reading them was when I had contextualized them with the accounts of the memoirs and the oral history interviews and so on of of Jews who were living in such appalling conditions so close by as a direct result of her husband's actions. You know, this disturbed me greatly. Mm -hmm. Um, But what what I did use in the book, and and I tried to steer a little bit clear of of the private life, what I did use in the book was what she says about her husband Mm -hmm. because he is what is called a person of contemporary history and his actions are of legitimate historical interest. Um, And what she says about him is that he's constantly suffering from nerves. Um, He's he's nervous and it gets much, much worse in the summer of 1942 where I think you could probably diagnosing at a distance retrospectively isn't easy, but you could probably say he was having something of a nervous breakdown. Um, He gets sent on a health cure for several weeks in the summer of 42, in the early summer, and this is between the first big deportation and roundup, big roundup and deportation to Auschwitz in May 1942, and the next really large one in August 1942. So he's away for a few weeks on a health cure. And Alexandra constantly comments on his nerves and that his nerves are worse than ever and so on. So we know this is a man who is he's physically not very well. He was injured um, when he was away at the front the previous year and came back medically incapacitated. So he was on sick leave for a long time, basically. Um, we know he's physically not very well, but he's also, I think, psychologically deeply disturbed by knowing what's going on and what he's getting into. But Alexandra obviously doesn't say anything too explicitly in her letters. Um, So it's very, very difficult to... It's the nearest we get 
to accessing a disturbed subjectivity at the time mm. rather than somebody saying years afterwards, oh, I was always against it. You know, so many Germans said, I was always internally against it, but outwardly I had to conform. Mm. But, but, but this is actually some way of almost... Um, seeing that through the, the letters of every other day where Alexandra repeatedly says Udo has come back from his cure, he's looking good, he's suntanned, he's healthy, he's clearly been well fed, but his nerves are worse than ever, it's terrible, it's just a total waste of money sp sending him on this health cure and so on. Mm -hmm. um, she's very concerned about money, despite the fact that they're very well off. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it is actually very intriguing. Mm -hmm. How do uh, Udo and Alexandra weather the rest of the war, and then what happens to them after the war? Oh, <laughs> yes. Um, the, it, it, Udo is refreshingly honest at one point in his memoirs, where he says he knows the wife of Landgrat wouldn't do very well once the Russians came. <laughs> and, <laughs> So, and this is very true, this is more than true, mm -hmm. and indeed, um, you know, some of his colleagues would have been strung up on a tree the moment mm -hmm. the Russians arrived, and so would he have been if they'd been around. Uh, he arranges, or she arranges, to leave the area. In fact, after the final ghetto clearance, when, there are, when the population of Benjin has been halved and half the town has been murdered, basically, after the final clearance in the summer of 43, she and her growing young family move to stay with relatives in the north of Germany. Um, on a, you know, she's got this huge network of aristocratic relatives. So they go there initially. And then in 1944, as things look bad, she starts planning her move westwards. So um, she is very clever, very capable, uh, organizes the move complete with the family silver rather than abandoning everything, manages to get herself and the children to an area in what after the war becomes the French zone of occupation, again to a very nice estate of an aristocratic friend of the family, um, a nice little castle with a moat around it, uh, so very pleasant surroundings. And Udo Klauser similarly manages to walk away from things at the end of the war and make it to this estate. And there, keeps his head down, does not present himself for denazification because he was in an automatic arrest category, mm -hmm. would have been automatically interned. And this, again, this a refreshing honesty at intervals in the documents here. This Alexandra writes to my mother in one of her letters after the war, after they've taken up their friendship again, Alexandra actually writes to my mother after two or three years saying, I didn't tell you before what occupation Nudo had because he was keeping quiet as a church mouse in hiding here um, and I didn't want to say that he was with us. Uh, but now that denazification has been taken out of Allied hands and put into German hands, he's managed to arrange through connections his denazification and has managed to get himself labelled as innocent, basically, mm -hmm. the lowest category possible, completely exonerated. Mm. Um, so for two or three years, he was in hiding. And the irony of this for me, or the thing that actually at the time I first discovered it made me incredibly angry. I, I no longer am, you know, I, I've worked through this, but when I first read this, I was unbelievably angry. The irony was that my mother did not know that Alexandra's husband was a Nazi. Mm -hmm. My mother was at that time living in South Wales um, and was sending Alexandra care packages of food mm. and sending her my eldest brother's cast-off children's clothing for her children um, so that, because Alexandra was complaining about how difficult it was to feed a family of five children and the poverty and the difficult uh, situation after the war in Germany and so on. And my mother's heart was bleeding for her friend and, um, and basically uh, felt she should help in whatever way she could, unknowing, not knowing that she was also helping to harbour a Nazi who was in hiding at that point. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that was the early post-war period. And then, of course, Udo got himself denazified and got himself a job and very rapidly rose up and in 1954 became the first director of the newly formed Rhineland Regional Council, which is a very big deal, a very big job in the West German civil service. Mm -hmm. In the late 50s and, and early 60s, that the, the, the Germans, the West Germans start to uh, actually look into the Holocaust, get the records mm -hmm. back, and they start to look. And so they, he never came... He, he never he never sort of showed up in their radar. 
He did. He did indeed. Yeah, okay. And in fact, there are endless documents, archival files, under his name in Ludwigsburg in the Central Office mm-hmm. for the investigation of Nazi war crimes. They started investigating him because his area was so close to yeah. Auschwitz and was so full of uh, crimes committed on its soil. And every time he was asked to give a defense statement, he said he was completely exonerated in denazification. So that was number one. Nobody asked, oh, but that was because it was through connections. His denazification file doesn't show up, although there are letters on his behalf, the so-called personal certificates that people got in order to whitewash their past. You know, they get, they get prominent priests and so on to write on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Very typical about denazification. So it, there are some documents we know that were in his denazification file that he's reproduced because they show him in a good light. Mm-hmm. But he always says, A, I was denazified and found to be exonerated. Nobody ever found anything against me. B, I was never there. C, I never knew anything about it. D, when I was there, and even though I knew nothing about it, I saved Jew from it. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's full of these little stories, these mm-hmm. little vignettes about things he did. The the saving of a Jew is only one of them. The not knowing about Auschwitz is another of them. And so, although he's investigated repeatedly, the Ludwigsburg office um, accepted his defences that he was not there. They never asked. They never checked his dates. If he said he was not there in June 1940, when 32 innocent people were shot in a reprisal for the death of a German gendarme, he said he was away in France fighting at the time. He wasn't. He was in the neighborhood. They ne- they never checked whether he was there, whether he was responsible. Mm. You know, it was that kind of thing. They just took his, his story at face value. The, there were some extraordinary um, stories in this Ludwigsburg files. Mentgen, the uh, the head of the gendarmerie in the area, who reported to Clauser. Clauser was in charge of the gendarmerie. Mentgen was the head of the gendarmerie. Um, he claims that he knew nothing about the deportations of either 1942 or 1943. Um, Ludwigsburg say, oh, why? Oh, because I was away at my son's wedding and only found out about it when I got back when I saw bloodstains near the station. Which year did your son get married in? Oh, it was either 1942 or 1943. I can't remember. <laughs> and they don't say, well, your son surely didn't get twice married twice, two years running. It's that kind of sloppy investigation. It's extraordinary. Mm. Um, so all these characters basically weren't there and didn't know anything about it, even though we know that the gendarmerie was involved in rounding up Jews from the villages and bringing them down to Benjin to the main collection point. Uh, and we know this from survivor accounts who, mm. who in 1946 were saying the gendarmerie came blasting into our village on their motorbikes and rounded us up and threw us into the back of a lorry and it was driven down to Benjamin. You know, so we know the gendarmerie was involved in the deportations, but mm. Mentgen, the leader of the gendarmerie, clearly didn't know anything about it, and nor did the Lundgrat who was in charge of Mentgen. Mm. You know, it, it, it's, it's extraordinary, the investigations, how... Um, but you see, they had much, much bigger fish to fry... Mm-hmm. If if you actually take the West German system of post-war justice, they investigated around 106,000 people, mm. of whom they only brought about 6,000 to court. Mm. You know, it, it's a tiny percentage. Mm. It's less than, it's 5%, basically, mm-hmm. of people they investigated were brought to court. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one final question about the book before I let you go. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, you, you said you talked to his son, Alexander and his son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, did he know what his father had done? Yes, in a sense. Um, he claimed to know everything because he said his father had been very, very open with him about everything. But what he knew was almost exactly a replica of the stories his father tells in his memoirs, uh-huh. uh, like the story about he never knew about Auschwitz. He only heard about it from an old school friend who he happened to meet on a train in 1944 wearing an SS uniform. Uh-huh. And this was the first he even began to get an inkling of what Auschwitz was about. And the son believed all these stories. He was brought up in a household where he really respected his parents, clearly respected and loved his father, and believed all his father's stories. And so he felt there was nothing knew to be learnt that his parents had been utterly open with him, mm-hmm. that this was just administration. And I felt and still feel pretty bad about having contextualised, richly contextualised, what just mm-hmm. administration actually meant in that racist system, mm-hmm. that it actually meant doing horrible things to other people who suffered as a result, mm-hmm. and it meant paving the way for 
genocide to be possible, even though I don't think Udo Glaser ever intended that to be the outcome of his actions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I thought it was a terrific book, and it's a brave book to have written, I have to say that, and you've been very, as I say, you've been very generous with your time. Um, we have a traditional final question on New Books in History, and that is, uh, what are you working on now, Mary? <laughs> okay, I'm working on a, a huge panoramic book, actually, about um, perpetrators and victims after the Holocaust. And I'm looking at what I call communities of experience, the impact on people, you know, from France to Poland, right across Central mm -hmm. Europe at the time, and the legacies for what I call communities of connection. Those are people who are inevitably affected by this past, children, grandchildren, people living close to and so on, and communities of identification, people who feel that they identify with this particular set of issues and are involved in memorialization projects, for example, education projects and so on. And what I'm trying to understand is what are the implications of different kinds of involvement in Nazi persecution for a wide range of groups for the generations that come after. So this is not about collective memory in the... Um, I think, grossly inflated sense of that term. It's not about narratives and public representations of the past. It's about what it actually, what impact it actually had on people through mm. patterns of behavior, attitudes, mm. a sense of shame or guilt, those kinds of things mm. which are, are very often not articulated in, in open narratives. So that's my current big project. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting and ambitious. It's a tough thing to get at. You know, it's easier, very, to, go, it's easier to go look at a Holocaust museum. <laughs> and say, yes. yeah, here's collective memory. Look at it. There it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Oh, we've been talking with uh, Mary Fulbrook today about her terrific book, A Small Town Near Auschwitz, Ordinary Nazis and the Holocaust. Mary, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Mary Fulbrook about her book, A Small Town Near Auschwitz, Ordinary Nazis and the Holocaust. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.